The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host... Sarah Morris. Hello, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here. Welcome to this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. This is just a note to say that if you are hearing this, then you are not currently part of my membership programme and will only be hearing the first part of each show. In order to access full episodes of the Tudor History and Travel Show, you will need to become a member of my membership site, the ultimate guide to exploring Tudor England via the link in the description associated with this podcast. Before we begin, and I introduced the subject of this month's show, I just wanted to say a few words of remembrance because if you follow me on Instagram, you will have seen a story I posted about a week ago now that my dad had unfortunately died following a long struggle with dementia. Uh, As those of you who have had relatives with dementia will know, it is the cruelest of diseases that takes away your loved one long before they pass away. And it had been hard to see dad suffering. And mercifully, in the end, following a fall and a broken hip, my dad passed away quite quickly. Um, But I want to dedicate this show to him because, again, if you've ever read anything about my background, you will know it was my parents, both my mum and my dad, who encouraged my love of history from the very beginning. Yes, a childhood spent roaming around the historic sites, particularly of North Yorkshire, where I grew up, was something that I did on a regular, a weekly basis almost during the summer. And uh, I often say that I was either going to hate history or love it. Well, I ended up loving it. And I have so much, uh, such a debt of gratitude that I owe to my dad, to my parents for that. So dad, this episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show is dedicated just to you. Thank you for everything that you've done for me. Okay, my friends. Well, wherever you are in the world, I hope you've had a good month and uh, you've had a good summer Uh, for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. And for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, lucky you, you'll just be starting with your spring, no doubt. Well, it's been a busy one here, although this month I've been just taking the foot off the accelerator a little bit, trying to wrap up a few projects here and beginning to plan for the next six months and beyond. And no doubt in the next episode, I'll bring you up to date with all the very latest plans here at the Tudor Travel Guide. But I think what we'll do now is crack straight on with this month's episode. Now, over the years that I've been running the Tudor Travel Guide, there has been one name that does tend to crop up. People email me specifically and say, 
oh, could you please do something on Bess of Hardwick? Well, your wish is my command, my friends. Sometimes it takes a little while to get there, but we are very definitely there in this episode because there is only one place that you must visit if you want to find out more about Bess of Hardwick's life and see a place that was very, very close to her heart. And that, of course, is Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire. Hardwick was built by Bess of Hardwick. And of course, you'll be hearing much more about her story and how she became one of the most powerful and wealthy women in all of England. And Hardwick Hall still stands proud atop a plateau of land, commanding the area around it. And wonderfully, it is almost a time capsule. Very little has been changed and it is full of both furniture and interiors that Bess herself would have known. And this makes it a complete treasure trove and a must-see if you're interested in either Bess of Hardwick, Tudor buildings, prodigy buildings and authentic 16th century interiors. So I was delighted to head up to Hardwick Hall earlier on this year and meet with our guide for today, Liz Waring from the National Trust. Now the National Trust, of course, are the guardians of Hardwick Hall And so I was delighted to be invited to explore the hall and its history. And that, of course, of its indomitable owner, Bess of Hardwick. So with that, it is time to say, my friends, let's go time travelling. And I would love to introduce to you Hardwick Hall and our guide, Liz Waring. Welcome, dear listeners, to Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire. I've been wanting to come here for quite some time because it's one of the grandest, perhaps one of the best-known prodigy houses in England associated with a grand dam of the Tudor age, Bess of Hardwick, of course. So I'm here to explore the house today with our guide, Liz. Liz Waring. Hello, Liz. Welcome to the show. Hi. (laughs) Lovely to uh, see you. Uh, Thank you so much for hosting us here today. Um, We're going to be telling the story of Bess and, of course, her magnificent property. Uh, And you'll be taking us on a guided tour of the house as we unpack both of those. But before we start, perhaps you could just introduce yourself and tell us what you do here at Hardwick Hall. So my name's Liz Waring. I'm the property curator here at Hardwick Hall, which is basically a curatorial overview of not only the house and collections, but also the whole property as well. So my main role is to um, look after and help conserve this, this wonderful building and everything within it. OK, lovely. OK, well, you have one, of, as I was saying, one of the grandest, perhaps one of the best known late Elizabethan houses to look after here. Um, so perhaps we should just start with the person, Bess of Hardwick. Can you just tell us, I'm sure many people listening to this will will have heard of Bess of Hardwick. Some may or may not be more familiar with her intriguing, fascinating life story. And we're going to dig into it in detail, but perhaps you could just tell us who was Bess of Hardwick and, and why is she so important to the Tudor age? Well, Bess of Hardwick actually became one of the most influential women um, in the Elizabethan age and one of the richest alongside um, Elizabeth I. Um, But she actually came from relatively humble beginnings. She was actually born on this site um, at Hardwick in a small manor house. She was minor gentry. Um, And um, through various marriages, um, she actually built up her wealth and um, 
the culmination of which is Hardwick Hall that we see today. Yeah, and it's known as a prodigy house, isn't it? Again, perhaps you could just define what on earth is a prodigy house for those people who don't know. Well, prodigy houses were generally built by the elite, the people who were within the court of, for example, Elizabeth I. And they were built as a real statement of wealth, um, but also they were built just in case Elizabeth I might come on a visit around the country and they would be a suitable place for her to stay. Okay. And I know that... Um Hardwick is just one of Bessie's property portfolio. I did visit her tomb at Derby Cathedral. And, and dear listeners, um, if you are a member of my membership, The Ultimate Guide, you'll be able to see my write-up of her tomb. And one of the fascinating things I thought was the tablet above it, where it literally goes to the, to the trouble of listing the properties. Can you tell us what other properties Bess ultimately came to own in this area? Well, one of the best known ones in this area is Chatsworth. Now, it's in a different form than it was in Bess's day. So Bess bought it again as a, um, well, Bess's husband bought it as a um, small um, manor house. Mm -hmm. And she rebuilt that in a beautiful Elizabethan style. It's since been remodelled. Um, so that was one of the main seats that, you know, she had and she lived in. Mm -hmm. She also rebuilt her own home um, once she'd moved back to this area. Um, so what we see today is the old hall. So that is the rebuilding of their quite provincial manor house. She's also known for um, helping design and build a house called Old Coats in which her son lived. Um, so she, she had a lot of practice in building houses, actually. So we believe that Hardwick, the new hall, or we call it Hardwick Hall these days, is um, sort of the culmination of all her practicing and everything that she's tried out on other buildings. And, and this is the ultimate how, um, building. How fascinating. And of course, we should just say, of course, that Chatsworth is still uh, very much lived in by the Dukes of Devonshire. So what best is uh, descendants, in fact? So her second husband, William Cavendish, um, his descendants are in fact still the Dukes of Devonshire yeah. um, and the Cavendish name lives on. Yeah. And, and the other thing to notice about, I think, her properties, um, and there was Wingfield Manor, wasn't there as well? Yes. And Sheffield Manor Lodge, um, of course. And we'll come to this, of course, there was the association between Bess and Mary Queen of Scots, which is such a big part of her story, isn't it, I think? Yeah, it's a very big part of her story, though I must say she never actually lived at um, Hardwick Hall, though people do think she might have done, but she was in fact dead by the time that Hardwick Hall was built. Oh. But yeah, the whole story of Bess is very closely linked to uh, Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah, well, thank you for clearing up that one myth, because I know there is a room in here, isn't there, that, that gives, gives rise to that myth, so let's get that sorted right at the beginning. Okay, let's just take a look. We are, we are at the end of a long path that leads up to the main entrance to the hall and you've got this well can you describe what we can see in front of us Liz in architectural terms well it's this wonderful um, symmetrical huge building um, and the main feature of it is glass um, there's a there's an old saying um, Hardwick Hall more window than wall and that is very very true about this um, this building and it's it has six turrets, and at the top of every single turret is the initials ES. Now, this stands for Elizabeth Shrewsbury. That was, um, she was Countess of Shrewsbury um, in, from her last husband, who she married, was the Earl of Shrewsbury. So that's really saying who owns this property. Mm. And it's built, you can see three distinct layers within the um, architecture. And that actually reflects the use of the inside of the house as well. So the ground layer, which is slightly smaller windows, is where the um, servants would have been. So that's the kind of, um, I don't know, sort of the production area of the house yeah. where things would have gone on. Operations. Where food, operations, <laughs> where food would have been made. 
etc. Um, but then the next level is the sort of more domestic spaces where the upper servants would have been. And in fact, this is the level that best used on a daily basis. And then the top level with the highest um, windows is the state rooms. This would have been safe for the special, most special guests and the most, you know, the really important people that came to visit Hardwick, just to really impress them in these state rooms. And in fact, there, you'll see another layer at the top of each turret is a room as well, and these can only be accessed by the roof. And the roof was a key part of the story as well, because she wanted to show off her lands pretty much everywhere you can see from the top of the house she owned at that time. So you can actually get out onto the roof and the people would have walked the leads. And the end turret, the south turret, was actually used as a banqueting turret. So she would have deliberately taken her guests up for the sort of pudding meal of, um, or the dessert meal, and they would have eaten in there and she would have shown off her estates as they walked down. Just fabulous. This was one woman who knew how to show off her bling, for sure. And of course, Hardwick is perched quite high up, isn't it, on a kind of a ridge of land. So I can imagine the views that you do get are, are, are far-reaching in every direction. Yes, you can see miles and miles, and I've been told, I haven't seen it yet, but I've been told you can see the um, spire of Lincoln Cathedral from the top, oh, wow. if you look out to the east side. Okay. Um, but you can also see, all, as I say, all her estates, um, what would have been her estates, to the west side as well. Yeah. So you do have these absolutely amazing views. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, when was this built? So it was built between 1590 and 1597-98. So she moved in in 97, but there was still some detail on the inside. The decoration hadn't been finally completed. Um, so it was actually built in quite a small amount of time for such a huge building. Um, but what people often don't realise is the, actually, the old hall just across the way worked alongside it. So the old hall was complete and worked alongside it for about 200 years. And the old hall had servants' quarters and the lesser family lived there. And the new hall is where Bess and the sort of her favourites in the family used to live, mm. um, which actually freed up the design of the hall because there needed to be less accommodation for the servants because they lived just across the way. So that had a real impact on the architecture and the design. Mm. Um, so there are a few servants' rooms in the attics. Mm -hmm. And what's quite interesting is as you look at the hall, you see these three main stories. But in fact, the top, the third story is actually split. So just the top of the windows is actually the attic floor and you can't quite tell it's a kind of hidden you way. You really can't can you it just looks it's part of the illusion of the house I guess how interesting. Um, and you'll also find with this amazing amount of glass now this was a real statement at the time of wealth mm. and um, she, she filled filled the hall with glass basically to show off how, how rich she was. But it's quite interesting because at this point and we'll talk a bit more about the history but she'd actually fallen out with oh sorry the Earl of Shrewsbury had actually died, but prior to that, she'd kind of fallen out with him. Mm. And his son, Gilbert, had the um, glassworks in the area. However, she wasn't getting on with him. So, you know, she, she just decided to build her own glassworks because she, she had the wealth and she had the power. Um, and she actually undercut the market. She sold any excess and sort of not put him out of business, but he didn't get such a good business. Um, in, also, interestingly, with, to make the hall look symmetrical, there are a number of blind windows. So these are actual, from the outside they look like windows, but from the inside they're probably behind a fireplace. 
for example, or a blind wall. So it's really to make sure there's that symmetry from the outside and make it look really impressive. Whereas on the inside, there are actually less windows that you can use. That's really interesting. So maybe we should just have a little stroll along because I've got a couple of other questions to ask you. We've got a big coat of arms. I take it that is Bess's coat of arms in the centre of the house up on the roof there. Yes, so that is. That's the, um, the stags, the Hardwick stags, and that's the um, Hardwick coat of arms in the middle. So they're the supporters of the, of the coat of arms. You'll see the stags all around the house. Okay. And they also wear Eglantine collars. So the Eglantine is a briar rose, a wild rose, that was one of Bess's symbols and the stags you always see them wearing these collars of these roses as oh, well. Oh fantastic and now you mentioned important guests who were amongst the most important visitors or guests do we do we know who came to pay court here to Bess? <laughs> we, we have an idea so there she wrote lots of letters and a lot of them survive which is fantastic unfortunately Elizabeth I never did visit even though she obviously wanted her to mm. but um, she also had quite an important granddaughter that lived with her in the house um, who was in line to the throne so Arbella um, so some people say this house was built partly for Arbella to show, you know, I as, as f potential future royalty as well. Um, because Bess really wanted, it was Bess's granddaughter, yes, right? Yes. And she really wanted Arbella to potentially inherit the throne after Elizabeth? Um, yes, I believe so. She was very... Um, she, she, strung, she thought a lot about dynasty and where her family members would go and in fact she did quite well because many of the sort of elite families in the country today are descended from Beth. Yes, she certainly had quite a few children. Anyway, let's, we'll, we'll dig into mm -hmm. some of her, you know, her family life as we go. So we're just approaching the uh, entrance and the main doors here so maybe we should uh, go inside and see what's there. Just to say we're standing under um, a loggia, um, which is a sort of covered area that's on this side of the house and there's an example on the other side of the house as well. And the original design, Bess actually intended for um, it to surround the house. Oh, I see. But as, as they were building, she often made changes to the design, which was um, by an well, what we call an architect now, Robert Smithson, um, who was actually a, a mason and building designer. Um, as she went along, they made these decisions not to put certain things in, and you'll see that around the house. Um, so you, from the outside, you can see some rough areas of stone where this would have been added, but they decided not to in the end. And do we know why? We believe it's because it would have made the rooms on the ends too dark. Okay, right. Okay, it's interesting, isn't it? And we've got original plans for the for the house, and we have a. There is a design um, that we believe that that matches pretty much the design of this house by Robert Smithson. Right. So we do believe that 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 relates directly to That's this so property. Though changes were made as it was built. That's so wonderful. There's so many slightly older houses where all floor plans have been lost. So really lucky to have that. So let's go inside and see what's in there. Right, yeah. so we've just come inside obviously a very grand space um it's almost like a a, a, a a sort of entrance hall stroke great hall but it's not really like the kind of great halls that i would associate with some some early tudor houses it's really different here isn't it can you explain liz what's going on Yes, yeah, so normally in a, in a um, similar house of a similar period, you would have had a transverse hall. So it would have gone along the front of the building um, and you would have had access to the rest of the rooms from it. However, this, this is um, 
a very different um, approach because Bess designed this hall to go from the front to the back of the building. And she'd actually done this as well in the old hall, so she'd practiced this design previously. And it kind of gives you, an, I would say, probably a much grander entrance um, because you can sort of see the full width of the property as you walk in and you get that wow factor in this huge space that's dominated by tapestries and um, particularly her coat of arms. So you, you can't can miss that coat of arms, can you, over the fireplace? <laughs> yeah, you definitely can't miss it. Um, the coat of arms is definitely a statement of whose house you're in. And as you can see, it's the same as the one on the front of the house as well. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. Was this space used in the same way as an older medieval or early Tudor Great Hall? Did people dine in here or had that really been abandoned by the time Bess built this house? People did dine in here, so it would have been the servants that would have eaten in here. Because just through um, to our left there is a, a door, a doorway that would have gone through into the serving room and the kitchens, and also a hatch for food to be served through. And again on the other side there is similar and that leads to the pantry. So food would have been served in here for, for servants, for sort of visiting people, but not the really important guests. Yeah. Um, so, but it was also used as this sort of amazing, you know, showing off entrance hall for the, for the really important guests would have, would have passed through this area on the processional route up to the state rooms as well. Yeah. So it's interesting in some ways, there's still the remnants of the sort of what would have been a screens passage with the low end, with the servants, uh, the doors to the buttery and the pantry and the kitchen and so on. But in so many other ways, it's, it's so very different. I can see a lovely picture that's um, spotlighted at the moment, which is clearly of Bess. And I wonder whether now's a time just to maybe pause and talk a little bit about her character. What, what do we know of the kind of woman Bess was? Who would I meet if I came here to Hardwick Hall, you know, 500 or 450 years ago? Yeah, go for it. So, yeah, so this is a, a wonderful portrait of Bess. So this would have been painted at the time when she was married to the Earl of Shrewsbury. She probably would have been looking after Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, and she looks quite like quite a sort of stiff figure like they often do in Elizabethan portraits. Yeah. But from what I understand was she was actually um, a caring person. Um, she looked after her servants and the people that worked on the estate really well. She was, um, sounds like she was very amusing and a, a really nice person to be with. I mean, all, all four of her husbands seemed madly in love with her. She seemed like a really charismatic person. And I think she's often described as formidable, which I think is a little bit derogatory. Uh, um, I think that sort of puts a more negative aspect on her. She certainly had strength of will. She, um, as a woman in that time period, she fought court cases against men, which she won one of them, which is unheard of at the time for a woman to do that. So she had a real strength of character. And later in time, she was painted in quite a bad light, I think. But actually, more research has gone into her and her history and her letters have been read and people who've written about her. She seemed like a really, yeah, a fun, strong person. And for anybody who wants to read about Bess, what do you think some of the best sort of bios of her? I think the book by Mary Lovell is an excellent sort of introduction to Bess and it gives um, a lot of her sort of background and um, right up to when Hardwick Hall was built, talks also about Arbella as well. I think that's a really good sort of grounding in um, the story of Bess. There's also a, a publication um, about Hardwick Hall that was published in 2016 um, that's also a really good introduction to the house and the collections if you want to know much more detail about the property itself. Okay, lovely. Okay. 
So, is there anything else you want to point out in this hall? Because this is the first part, I suppose, of a processional route, if anybody was arriving at the house. Anything else we need to know about what would have happened in here if we were arriving at Hardwick Hall? So there would have been um, three big tables in here. There's one now, um, but there would have been three apparently at the time. And one thing to say is that we're actually incredibly lucky as custodians of Hardwick Hall because um, in 1601, Beth had an inventory taken of everything in her house, which is key from, from tables and chairs to curtains to even the tiniest things that you would have found in a chest are all listed within this 1601 inventory. So we know exactly what was in each room at that time. So we're incredibly lucky in that respect. So we know where everything was. Um, but yes, yeah, so as, you, as, you, as a guest arrived, they would have been brought through probably by um, servants dressed in the Hardwick livery, which we believe was a blue uniform that all the servants had. And they would have been escorted up the processional route um, to the main state rooms. But as they came through, the guests couldn't fail to notice, as we mentioned, the, um, the stags, the coat of arms above the fireplace. It really shouts out who this place belongs to. And you've also got these wonderful tapestries um, on the walls as well. So the original tapestries are now in the V&A collection that would have been hung here, but these are a slightly later edition, but they give exactly the same effect. So you would have had these wonderful images and stories um, within the tapestries as well. And then right at the end of the hall, you can see the two roundels with the Cavendish sna snakes in them. So this shows um, the Cavendish heritage as well. Uh, what, tell me about the snakes. What do they represent? I'm not sure exactly why they're snakes, but they are the Cavendish snakes, yeah. and you can see them all on um, all around Chatsworth as oh, well. Can you? Um, right. In the architecture and in, for example, on the drain hoppers and things like that, they've got Cavendish snakes on oh. them. So that's that's a key symbol for the Cavendishes. <laughs> We've been greeted and now we're going to be heading towards the, the hub, the heart of the house to meet with uh, Bess herself. So where, where do we need to go next? So we go right through this um, doorway here and we head up the main stairs. 
So we're on the far side, we've come across, across the length of the hall. Yes, right oh. to the east, from the west to the east side. Okay, and we're, we're being led through a corridor and you can immediately, the thing that strikes you on your right hand side is a glorious stone staircase. That's meant to have impact, isn't it? It certainly is. And as you progress up it, it has even more of an impact for many reasons. Um, and you'll hear probably that we will get quite out of breath by the top of it. <laughs> um, it was designed to impress and it was designed to make you feel um, a little on the back foot, I think. Um, so you are out of breath and you, then you, as, as we see as we go up, we then experience the amazing state rooms. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's take a climb up these stairs. So everything we see in Hardwick is original to the house that Bess constructed? No, not quite. So there are a lot of original. Um, the, the architecture and the, the physical factors are mainly original. There were a few changes made later in time. Yes. Um, but in um, the 6th Duke of Devonshire actually added quite a lot of sort of more what he considered historic items from other houses that the... Um, so these are the interiors and the furnishings yes, to the house? Yes, so some of them are completely original yes. to, um, and we know that because they're in the inventory. But for example, all the tapestries that line the stairs wouldn't have been here in Bessie's day. So they would have been whitewashed walls. I see. <laughs> so the main staircase is designed to be a play on light and dark as well, shadow and dark. So you go into lighter spaces and then you go into darker spaces. And it's all part of the sort of drama of going up the stairs and yeah. experiencing this, this processional route. So there are um, internal windows that let light through. I was going to say, it's a very strange feature. It looks like that should have been an external wall. This is sort of a quite a grand window that sits above part of the staircase. The staircase turns around and about on itself, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it keeps going round back on itself as you yeah. go up. Um, so you get different views as you go up, things open up in front of you. <laughs> There's a castellated edge to the staircase, which is quite unusual at this time. It kind of harks back to the castles, um, but this time period was quite peaceful. So actually, Hardwick Hall, while it looks quite like a castle from a distance. The amount of glass obviously shows that it's, it's you know, has, has none of those um, defence systems that a castle would have. It does sort of hark back to the kind of um, medieval castles in certain aspects. So this, this is one example of it on the stairs. I don't know, I mean, I'm not an expert on architecture, but I remember coming here for the first time, uh, well, no, a revisit last year, and kind of expecting to see a wooden staircase, you know, a grand wooden, late Elizabethan, Jacobean-style staircase. I was quite surprised it was a stone staircase, which perhaps I associate more with sort of earlier houses. So I'm just, I'm just, there is just some features of Hardwick I find quite intriguing like that. And I'm, I'm not sure if this is definitely the reason, but it's possibly because of the expanse, the width of the staircases. Um, I, I believe it may have been made in stone um, partly because of that. Because they are wide, aren't they? We're talking, what, five metres across maybe the staircase? I'm just, just four, four or five Three meters. or four, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah it's definitely very wide. And compared, we do have actually have a wooden staircase on the north end um, where guests could have come down um, the stairs. But this, this one is built to impress. And I think also the stone adds to that. Yeah. So um, you'll notice as you come up the stairs, and there's, there's also um, this on the north side as well, there's this wonderful plaster head above the door, um, a sort of um, quite scary looking person, um, sort of soldier that, yes. that is above the door. And this actually will find these people above the areas that were more private. 
So this is kind of a symbol that they're guarding the more personal, more private areas of the house. I see. Um, sort of kind of warding people off not to go in there unless they're actually invited. How interesting. I guess that would probably would have been obvious to somebody who was visiting back then. It's kind of lost on us as so much of the symbolism is lost on us now. Anyway, we're only halfway up the staircase, so I guess we need to keep Sorry. going. Do we know, oh, well, you will know, how many steps there are? There are 63, I have counted. <laughs> I've counted a number of times to make sure. Uh -huh. um, so actually it doesn't sound that many, but when you're actually walking up there, it is... As, as you can hear, you get out of breath quite quickly. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And this last flight here that sort of curves its way up and round to the right, you get the feeling something significant is going to be at the top of them. Yes, it kind of opens up this viewpoint. You can't quite see what's at the top because no, it curves can't. around the corner, but there's anticipation about what it might be. It's all done on purpose, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. It's all done just to make people anticipate what's coming, make them feel a little bit insignificant, just so they're best feels even more important and yeah. once you get there. But we've kind of come halfway up and, and it sort of opens out into another little lobby area rather than sort of a narrow staircase that continue, continues to wind up towards the presence chamber. What's this bit for? It must have served a purpose. So in the inventory actually there are some what they call chests that rolled out into beds here. So we believe the servants actually slept here when people were upstairs at night. So they were ready and on hand to sort of be called upon if needed in the night. But it's also potentially an area where people were sort of kept while they were waiting to go up into the stateroom. They would have sort of not have been held here as it were, but like a sort of holding place for yes. people um, before they went up into the important rooms. Yeah, at it's the almost top. like a Tudor waiting room. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's go up and... Uh get into one of the most important rooms in the house, I guess. Yes, definitely. So um, we are working our way up to the high grate chamber. And this would have been the sort of presence room where the guests would have met Bess. And I remember coming in here last year. That's the first time I've been back for many years. And this snapshot of you as through the doorway, this wooden doorway, you get the snapshot straight through to Bess's sort of canopy of estate there. It's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? It is absolutely fantastic. And you've got just that little reminder before you go through the door that this is Bessie's house, again, with the coat of arms above the door. Right above the door there. That's wonderful. These features, the wooden door, these are all original to the house? Yes, yes. So the wooden door, um, the plasterwork above it is all original. That's wonderful. Okay, let's go inside. It feels like some kind of reverential space. I almost, I almost feel like I need to be sort of groveling. <laughs> and that, that's exactly how you were meant to feel. <laughs> yeah. I love this room. Um, it's just spectacular. How much was Bess directly involved in the design of Hardwick? Was she all over it? We believe she was. Um, I mean, there's nothing specific to say that, but she, she had had a lot of experience in building houses. And it seems that she worked with Robert Smithson, even as it was being built, to change the design to fit in with her lifestyle a bit better as it happened. Right. So we're, we're pretty confident that she was pretty instrumental in the design for the property. So do you want to talk to us about this room? Um, you know, some of the features in the room that we need to look out for, particularly if people are coming to visit Hardwick. What should they really be paying attention to when they come into Bess's presence chamber? So one of the key things you notice as you come into this room is the plasterwork around the top level of the walls. Uh, now this is um, 
amazingly detailed sort of forestry. Um, there's animals. There's a massive um, royal coat of arms as well. Um, but it's really um, above the canopy. It's displaying there's um, Diana. So it's showing the court of Diana, which is alluding to Elizabeth I. Um, so it's kind of a space that's in reverence to Elizabeth I. So if she ever came here, she would have understood. And, and as you say, people understood all this detail at the time. It was something that was just common to their knowledge and their language that we, we don't necessarily know today. So this would have been, yeah, this, this whole room would have been partly to present best to her guests, but also in honour of royalty, as you can tell by the coat of arms above the fireplace. Since you raise the question of Elizabeth, is it fair to say they were rivals? Uh, did they get on? I'm always a little bit confused because Bess was part of Elizabeth's household, um, quite an intimate part of her household. So you would imagine that Elizabeth would have her around in that kind of capacity if, if there was a decent relationship between them. And yet there also seemed to be this intense rivalry. Can you try and unpick that a little bit for us? Yeah. It's quite difficult to say because we believe she probably would have um, met Elizabeth at quite a relatively young age, potentially um, within the court circles that she, she was within at the time. Um, what, what, may I interrupt there? What, how old do you think, um, what year are we talking about? How old would Bess have been at the time and, and Elizabeth? Well, it's not actually documented, but um, Bess, um, we know Bess went into um, service of the Grey household, for example, um, who you'll, you'll have, everyone will have heard of Lady Jane Grey. Um, so she kind of, it was often common for, for minor gentry to go into households um, be their upper servants. And when we say servants, they weren't what you might imagine a servant to be. They were learning court life. They were learning to sew, learning how to live in this sort of court elite circle. Um, so she potentially would have come into contact um, with Elizabeth then. Um, and then later in time, she married, the, the men she married, so like William St. Lowe, Earl of Shrewsbury, were all high up in the court of Elizabeth. So she would have certainly rubbed shoulders with her. She was made um, part of the privy chamber of Elizabeth. So she would have worked alongside her. She potentially had her ear. You know, she would have known her and talked to her. It wasn't quite the highest level, um, but she was within a really high circle in Elizabeth's, of, of Elizabeth's women, I would say. Um, however, then she also being Bess and quite strong-minded, she, she upset Elizabeth a few times. So, for example, so Bess was quite good friends with Margaret Douglas, the Countess of Lennox, who was Margaret Tudor's daughter. Um, so she had arranged with um, Margaret for Margaret's son to marry her daughter Elizabeth. And, and I just might mention here that I think that son was the younger brother of Lord Darnley, also, of course, husband of Mary, Queen of Scots. So there's a lot of linking going on here. Isn't exactly. There? There's a lot of linking and a lot of potential for problems here. Yes. Um, so they'd, they'd arranged for this marriage without actually getting permission from Queen Elizabeth. And because they were in line to the throne, both, both um, sides, it was you had to ask permission from whoever was on the throne at the time for this marriage to occur, and they hadn't. And they got into a lot of trouble for this. Bess actually got away quite lightly. She was told off, I think. She was called down and told off, but Margaret Lennox, or Margaret Douglas, mm. um, Councillor Lennox, actually went into the tower for a few days, I think. So this was a serious, you know, problem that she'd caused. So um, when the Earl of Shrewsbury and Bess became estranged, um, there was a lot of conflict and there was a lot of accusations going on at the time. And Elizabeth I actually got involved to try and calm this down on the side of Bess. So there was, there seems to have been a good relationship there that she would go that far. 
um, to do that. So we never, we'll never quite know how close they were, I think. Um, but for example, Bess did um, commission this wonderful portrait that we have in the collection of Elizabeth I. So she was, she was always alluding and honouring her in, in a lot of what she did. So she obviously respected her greatly. Yeah, absolutely. She just stayed on the right side, didn't she? I think just about. Just about. <laughs> well, I don't want to rush on for this room, but I know there's another spectacular room waiting for us for a moment. But I feel that, I I feel that we should just approach the chair of estate here. So um, Bess would have been seated here waiting to greet me as I came in as an Elizabethan visitor. I believe so. So similar to how the Queen would have um, accepted her her guests and her visitors underneath the canopy on a type of throne. This actual canopy is not one that Bess had, but it's an example. And this was actually um, Bess's grandson's wife that created this. So it's not, not that far no, away not in time. Not too far away at all. No. Um, but she would have had a canopy and there is, there is records of that in the inventory as well. It's so grand, isn't it? It's such a statement of, <laughs> look at me. <laughs> <laughs> How important am I? And it, it's just wonderful. But that would put that canopy to what, into the early 1600s then? Or yes, mid more or less about then. So yes. It's yeah. really, yeah. So yeah, I mean, that is it's a, just a spectacular piece of, of needlework. But we're surrounded by lots of other fabulous tapestries. And, and Hardwick's known for its collection. Bess's collection is still kind of... It's a, it's a national collection, isn't it? Yes, um, we have some incredibly important tapestries here in the collection, and it is. It's, it's um, a collection that is, on, is internationally significant. Um, and, for example, in this room, we have the story of Ulysses and Penelope, um, which lines the walls, and Bess bought these deliberately. And she often bought things that related to strong female role models, and Penelope is one of them. And she, um, some of her key pieces here are embroideries of, of noble women and Penelope is one of them as well. Because um, if, if you don't know the story, um, Penelope was known as a virtuous and faithful wife because her husband Ulysses went off to war for many, many years and um, she people said, oh, he's gone, you need to remarry. But she carried on with her, her needlework at night and she said, when I finish this needlework, I will remarry. But every night she unpicked it. So she didn't have to marry anyone else because she wanted to remain faithful to her husband. Mm -hmm. And when he came back from the wars, um, he was obviously praised her for what, what a wonderful, mm -hmm. faithful wife she was. And Bess often uses these figures from myth um, and legend to kind of um, portray herself through them, we yes. believe. Yeah, so I just wanted to show you this absolutely wonderful table, which is one of the most important sort of items in the room. It's again listed in the 1601 inventory and it's called the Eglantine table. So I mentioned earlier the Eglantine roses um, and these were a big symbol of Bess and she'd commissioned this table when she married um, George Talbot. So we've got the Talbot coat of arms here as well but also interestingly at the time um, her son married one of his daughters and her daughter married one of his sons. So she was really cementing this dynasty um, by arranging all these marriages. And this table basically celebrates that nice. with the coats of arms on the middle. It also shows the pastimes that people at this you know, at this time would have would have done. So there's there's lots of board games, card games, and there's also a lot of musical instruments. So these would have been the entertainments of the day. And in fact, the um, 
there is a score of music here as well, which yeah. can actually be played. And we do, we have heard it played before, which is absolutely I going, amazing. I was going to ask you, because there's just one here right in front of me. And I was just going to say that. I bet you could play those. Yeah. So, um, that's in, absolutely incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. This table dates, as you were saying, from the marriage to the Earl of Shrewsbury. So that's somewhere in the 1560s? Yes, that's, that's about when this would, towards the late, late part of the 1560s. That, I mean, it's an incredible insight, isn't it, to Tudor social life by being able to see these visual depictions of cards. As you say, the, is that black gammon? I, I believe so, I believe so. And I something similar to chess. But. Something similar to chess. And then we've got something that looks like a violin, probably, I don't know, a viol. I, I'm no, and maybe, uh, um, I don't know. I believe there's a lute on a the lute other side on and the other pipes side. and things. Oh, yes, there's a lute. I mm -hmm. can see it right there. You could spend a long time looking at this table. Yeah. Thanks so much for pointing that out. No so problem. I would say that's something if you're coming up, to, uh, dear listeners, coming up to the presence chamber, don't just think, oh, there's a bit of a table over there and just, just go over and have a really good look at it. What an insight into Tudor life. Thank you so much for showing us that. No problem. Well, speaking of wives and husbands, I think this is such an important part of Bess's story, her four uh, marriages where she seemed to successfully climb the social ladder one after the other. I know next door we're going to be heading into the Long Gallery. I think there's some fantastic portraits in there. So you can maybe talk to us about her marital career and just how Bess managed to go from sort of minor gentry to being part of the nobility. So can, can you lead the way and yes, take certainly. us to the first of those? listening to the first part of this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. The remainder of this episode is only available to members of my membership site, The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England. To join the waitlist to become a member of The Ultimate Guide, click on the link in the description associated with this podcast. You will be added to the waiting list and I will email you just as soon as the doors to the membership next reopen. I'll see you there. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. <laughs> <laughs>